0: Heaven, what a privilege it is to be able to call thee our Father in heaven. And our children give us a sense, O oh Lord, of in some measure of how dost thou look upon us. And they are near and dear unto us and we want the best for them, dear Father. And thou art able to give us the strength and the resources to bring them up according to thy will. We ask thee for a blessing upon this forum that the things that you may share, O Lord, that they may be useful and beneficial, O Lord, and encourage one another, dear Father. For the battle is the Lord's, and we are in enemy territory, and this is a difficult time, but it is not hopeless. We thank thee and praise thee in Jesus' name. Amen. This is the second part of a forum. The first one we had on Tuesday and they dealt with the early part of childhood up to about the age of 12. Now even the Jews they recognize that there is a transition from the years before the age of 12 to after. The Bar Mitzvah when a Jewish boy becomes now an accountable to the law is around age 12. Now, I'm here in a supporting role and my wife is going to talk over from here on.
1: Going to try to use both mics because this one is just for recording so I hope everybody can hear me at the back is that loud enough good okay I'd like to just start by just doing a little bit of review before we go into what we want to talk about today and it's just going to be very brief because I just want to go back and touch upon the three strategies that we talked about the last time uh, parenting strategies and I think uh, Eckhart has the first um, overhead up there we talked about three different ways of parenting uh, the first one was a child centered parenting where the child is elevated above the family, there's too many choices and freedoms that are given prematurely, and the child learns to become very self-centered and selfish. And if you see that the, the funnel starts from a wide base and goes up to a narrow, and parents make the mistake of giving a lot of freedom at the beginning, and by the time they get to that teenage stage, they really want control. And it's impossible because the child has already had too much freedom. The second parenting strategy is to the right of it, and that's the authoritarian parenting model. And you'll notice that it's a very narrow funnel. The parent is in full control from the very beginning right to the end. And that's the model that will exasperate a child very quickly because they have the, probably the maturity to be able to handle things, and we still want to keep that control over them. It's too authoritarian and often has a double standard. The parent requires the child to do these things, but often doesn't do it himself. The third model is the one that we want uh, to be used or we think should be used by everyone, and it's called the progressive growth um, parenting model. And you can see it starts with a very narrow base from the bottom and gradually over the years extends up and where you are giving the child then full control when they become independent and mature enough to handle it. And the tricky part is to know you've got to start off with authority. And as you go through these phases, for example, the first few years, if you have not established uh, your authority and first-time obedience from your children, that they are willing to, uh, to obey you in those first few years, then when you get to the next phase, it becomes even more difficult because the child hasn't learned to obey and you're dealing with disobedience and you're dealing with some of the other issues that you'll have to deal with at the next level. So how well you do each stage it makes a difference in your child as they get older. Okay? Um, we'll go through some phases in this modeling, and the years, are, you can, or you can go to the words, yeah. Um, there are four basic phases, and I started just to talk quickly about the first one, which is the, the discipline stage up to around age five, where you're going to be establishing your, your authority. Then comes the second phase, which is the six to 12, and that's the stage where we ended at pretty much in our last form talking about those what we call middle years these are the very crucial years they're the years when a lot of things are happening you may not see it they're under the surface the children are are developing their own morals and you have uh, been very instrumental in in putting those morals into your child we talked about that conscience when a child is born he has a, a clean conscience he only has that primary conscience which is his his knowledge of good and evil and you are he comes with a clean slate uh, and you are putting in all these morals. You are building those into his life. It's like a warehouse. You're, you're stocking it up so that he can use it later on. And these are the years that you're doing it. These are the years that they accept them very readily. And they're done in, in not a teaching situation, but in every situation in your life. Whatever you're doing together, this is where the Deuteronomy verse comes in, where you're teaching them as you're sitting down, as you're standing up, you're sometimes not even aware that they have grasped it but it's so vital. If you don't do that, then your next phase will be very difficult. And that's what we call the coaching phase from the age 13 when the teenage years start to 19. And, and the child is well into his life by this point. He's already assimilated his values. He's done those things. And now you're only going to be able to start um, influencing them. Control is very difficult anymore. And if you have children at this age, you realize that they begin to exert their own wishes and their own uh, wants. And you can only, from the sidelines, coach them and help them to develop, okay? And then, hopefully, if all of those phases have gone well, you should come to the point where at the end of those teenage years, with the maturity that takes place, you should be able to develop a real friendship with your children. This is where the good part comes in. At least that's what I've enjoyed so far, where you get to that stage, they are an adult, and, and especially if they're converted, you really do... Have a close, close relationship with them. Okay. Uh, we talked about the maturity is so important, and 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 it is. And there are four phases that we go through, uh, of, of for uh, this maturity. Actually, not phases. Four different types of maturity. One is the moral maturity, and Eckhart uh, kind of alluded to that when he introduced it, is that even with the Jewish people, they go through that age where they become mature and and they're accepted. And I think we call it the age of accountability, that mature level. And of of all the, the types of maturity that we're expecting from our children, this is the first level of maturity that they attain, that moral maturity. So you should be able to have an adult relationship when you connect at that moral level with your child. And that can start from whenever, like I say, whenever they get to that age of accountability where they have assimilated those moral values. Then we have the legal uh, maturity, which comes at, at age 18 in most places, I would think, and for most things. Then the physical maturity, which usually takes place at a, between 18 and 21 years of age. Then your social and intellectual maturity, that is determined by the society. Some, some places have a lower age, some places have a higher age and that's something that's not defined totally. We can help our children grow with moral fortitude, and and that's the most important task, I think, of parenting, is that moral strength because of what they're facing in their world. If we haven't given them that good moral backing, the things, the issues that we're going to talk about at this level are going to be very difficult for them to withstand. So those, I always say to parents that if you haven't done a good job up till 12, then you're really going to be in trouble after 12. So those, those first few years when they really look up to you, when, when you are their hero, when, when those things are important, that's when you do all your groundwork. Okay, we're going to just talk on some of the issues that are, are relevant uh, to uh, parenting at this age. And one of the things that we always hear about, the minute you hear about teenagers, is hormones. That's a scary thing to most people. But people don't realize that hormones are not active at 12, they're already active at age 7. There are changes taking place in your child already by age 7. And I remember with our uh, older one, uh, there was a time when w- the mood swings would happen, they were discouraged, he would come in crying, nobody likes me, I don't have any friends, and I'm sure you've experienced that with your own. That's already a beginning of those hormonal changes that are taking place. And you, you need to comfort them, and it would break your heart sometimes to hear, and you, no matter what you tell them, they won't believe you sometimes that, that they don't have friends. Sometimes it was a fatigue problem, and you'd say to them, you know, you just need a little more rest, you'll be okay tomorrow, you'll see things a little differently. But that's the beginning of this of this um, issue of hormones. And um, that uh, these physical characteristics that are different in the children, that does bring stress and anxiety to your child. And these are things that we have to be aware of, that we have to be... Empathetic with, with our children so that they know that we understand their situation. Hormones play a significant role in influencing behavior, but the real problem is not the hormones, and this is what I think we have to understand. It's, it's the values. The values are becoming. If they are assimilating your values, then those problems will not be as difficult for them to deal with. So the hormones, we can't blame everything on that. Okay, let's go to another issue that's uh, quite relevant at the, at the teenage level, and that's the peer pressure. We hear an awful lot of talk about that as well. And um, everyone has a need to conform, to be accepted, to belong to some social group. And problems arise when the standard in the home strongly convicts, conflicts with those of parents and children in our community. That's where the problem will come in the teens must decide what's more important, the approval of their peers or of their parents. And the closer the values between the parents and the teens, the stronger the allegiance is going to be to the parents and the less you are going to have to deal with those pressures. So that's why I say it's important in the pre-years, in those middle years, to establish those strong allegiances to you and your family. And then when those pressures come along, it won't bother them. It, it, it all hinges on the family identity, and it's a process by which a child first associates with his parents, gains a sense of belonging, and finally pledges their allegiance to the family. Remember this one. Peer pressure on a child is only as strong as the family identity as weak. I can honestly say that with our children, I mean, we only had two, so it's hard to, to gauge it with somebody who has a larger family. But really, the teenage years came and went without any significant difference other than that I guess we grew a little closer together yes we had a few fender benders along the way but I think that's that's going to happen but I can honestly say really I didn't notice too much difference and I think it was because we had established a good relationship with them earlier on we never encountered an issue of dating we did encounter a lot of those things that we hear an awful lot of talk about today we'll go into that in a little bit more detail as we continue but it doesn't have to be a rebellious teenage situation in your home. And that's the next topic we want to just touch on a little bit. is the teenage rebellion and parental rejection. I think this is the outgrowth of some of those other things that we've already talked about. And um, again, it's, the rebellion is not the issue, it's the relationship. Relationships are the basis of everything in your, in your parenting And we'll talk again more about that as we go on. It it could be due to your parenting style. Maybe you had a child-centered approach that you used. Maybe you were too authoritarian and you didn't give up the control when you should have. By the time they hit age 12, your control should be easing up. You should be starting to influence by your, uh, just influencing rather than by your control. Uh, I can give you an example. We didn't have any problem, like I say, with the dating and so on throughout the teenage years, but came to the final year of one of our children's years in high school. And all of a sudden the question came up about the prom. Mom, I really need to go, I'm just, I'm just going to go with my friends and so on. And it really bothered me and I thought, now what do I do? I can't just say no, the child is old enough to be able to make up its own mind. So. I really prayed about it, and I thought about it, and I said to him one morning, he came and he said, I've got to put my money in by tomorrow, Mom. I've got to decide. So I said to him, I said, do you know what? Five years you've spent in that school, and you've given everybody that you know a witness of what you are for those five years. I said, do you really want to blow it on this one um, activity that the school is, is, this one function? And I left it at that. He went away and he thought about it and the next morning before he headed off to school he says, Mom, you know what, you're right, I really don't have to go. And that's an example of parenting by influence. Now maybe it was easier in my situation, maybe it's not always that cut and dried with everybody else, but that was, that was the influence that I used because I knew he had already accepted our standards and, and it was easy to just avoid that situation. We talked about family and, and the family identity. And there are two things that, two types of family structures that we can establish in our homes. And one of them is an independent family structure. And, and this can be represented by people standing in a circle, holding hands, but they're all facing outwards from the circle. And in that situation, when everybody's doing that, yes, you're a family and you appear like a wonderful family from the outside, but your influence can't get to that child if he's facing away from you. And the peer pressures from the outside are pulling him further and further away from you. And you don't have the, the relationship from sibling to sibling or parent to child. And so that type of a family structure will bring you some problems in the teenage years. And they're going to look for their peers for satisfaction for their basic social needs. And they're more sensitive to the, to the groups as well. And they tend to start to reject your family uh, values that you've given The other type of a family structure is an interdependent family structure. And that's the same idea of people holding hands and forming a circle, but this time the people are facing inwards, And each of you has an interaction with each other. You can have a parent-child interaction, you can have a sibling-sibling interaction, and you're pulling together, you're not pulling apart. So there are some things that we can do to develop this kind of a family structure in your own home situation. And that will pull you through some of these hard times. The other example is the power of community. And I think that's so important. And I know with us, it started very early when we lived in a little area where there were most of the families on our street all had children about the same time. And it came to the point where they weren't satisfied to stay on the street and play anymore. Now they could get on their bikes and take off. I began to panic. I don't know where he's going. I don't know what he's doing. I don't know what he's up to. And so your community, Play, begins to play some influence in your family's uh, situation as well. And, um, and, and that's when you have to start to develop friendships with people who have the same values as you do. And basically, I think this is where the church comes into play. You may not have too many, but you can at least find a few families. We had, in our little church, when our children grew up, there weren't really many children. But there was basically two families that our children associated with. One had girls and the other one had boys, and the one lived fairly close to us. So once a week we took them swimming and we met. And those kids, that was the highlight of their week, other than the Thursday when we had our church night. And and those were the things that we built in. That was our community. We didn't have much more, but it it helped them establish that yeah our our, fair, our parents are on the right track, because other parents were holding up to that same value and they could see it in their families. And uh, if you get discouraged that there's no one around that you can depend on or have that community relationship, I often think of Noah. Where was his community support? He certainly did a good job of parenting because not only did he save his own sons, but the daughters-in-law were also saved. And to me, that's a real powerful testimony that I can hold on to, even if you seem discouraged, even if you think that there is no one else that thinks like me or that has the same standards. But I think we need to really support our church and and find our friends there, and especially for our children's sake. So how do we build a healthy family? That's the next thing that I want to talk about. The last forum, I heard some comments afterwards that, oh, man, I'm so discouraged by everything that you said because it's so difficult to do and so on. Yes, but but it it isn't difficult if we start the right way and if we build right up from the bottom up. And um, we'll come into some other little um, ideas and strategies as well but to build a family spirit we need to cultivate a team spirit and the husband has to be the spiritual leader and we're going to get to the husband's mandate and some of the things that he's his role is in the family in a little bit and that will be a repeat also from the first one but I think it's important Uh, you need to have that spiritual head you need you need that father needs to be there in a supportive role for everybody in an encouraging role to keep that family identity strong And you need to to, to instill a God-fearing value system in your children's lives by teaching them. You need that first-time obedience. How many of us are guilty, like we talked about in the first form, of that either being a threatening, bribing parent, or threatening, repeating parent, sorry, or a bribing parent, and we don't bring our children to obedience because we're teaching them by allowing things to happen, by, by them not obeying you, you're teaching them disobedience. You are in sin then if you're doing that. Because you're teaching that child not to trust your word. And that's what breaks the relationship right from the beginning. Because if you say what you mean, and you mean precisely what you say, the child will follow through. It's harder for the parents to be the authority sometimes than it is for the child to obey. So if we remember that, and if we we stick to what we say, the child will come along. And each child has to, first of all, I should talk about this, is the the, the relationships within the family, and we touched on that again in the first form, was the husband-wife relationship must be the foremost. That's the family unit. And from there, the children are extensions of that family. And so you need to keep that husband-wife relationship very strong. When the children see that dad loves mom, that builds security, and the children need to see that. You need to, to... to show them in front of the children that you do love each other by the things that you do. You've also got to give children responsibility. How can they identify with your family if they have no role in that family situation? That's really key. The Amish say that if your child is not an asset by age 7, something's wrong. (laughs) Now, they do think a little stricter and a little firmer than we do. But basically, I think that's not far off the mark. I know that I started very early with our children giving them responsibilities. When, when my children were uh, still in elementary school, I went back to work. And that's when I began to, to give out responsibilities to my children. And you know, I worked only half days for many, many years, but it got to the point where my children could put a meal on by the time I got home from work. And it was, most, sometimes I would prepare the meat part of it ahead of time and they just had to put it in the oven. But really, and they felt good. In fact, we had some someone from our church doing some work for us for, uh, at one time finishing off our basement. And I wasn't home. I was working. And, and my older son prepared the meal for them when they were finished that day's work. And, and they just couldn't believe it. But these are things that are possible. I came from a family, I guess, where I started to work very early. And so I, I look back and I think I learned an awful lot of things. I worked hard when I was a child, but I learned a lot of things from that. And so... I think the children can, too, learn a lot of things from those responsibilities you give them. We're going to just go into the, into the instruction um, method now that we talked about earlier and the other uh, one as well, but there's a little different application for it. Uh, the skills chart, the, the instructions, and how to, how to teach them, uh, be a moral example. Yes. Moral, uh, moral instruction, and sometimes I think papal, uh, parents make this mistake too. You, you want to teach when the problem arises. But that's not what Deuteronomy says. Deuteronomy says you should be teaching diligently all the time. And your teaching is going to be much more effective if you do it in non-conflict situations. That's where the teaching is taking place. And, and you teach your children by correcting, admonishing, warning, rebuking, and encouraging. And, and I want to say something, that at the beginning when you're teaching it's a it's a restrictive type of training that you're doing it's no no and you're teaching them that way but as soon as you've got that that first-time obedience under control when they're very small then you need to switch over to an encouraging I'm not sure if you're aware that you need for every negative comment that you make to something to your child you need to have four encouraging comments to counteract the effect of that negative negative. and I know we're all guilty and and I was guilty of not encouraging my children enough as well when they were younger But it makes such a difference and in those years between 6 to 12, they want to please you. They want to do things. I remember one incident when it happened to be Valentine's Day and we had gone out for dinner with friends of ours. When I came back, the older one along with the younger one had made a crepe cake out of crepes all stacked up with filling between and he had put some hearts on top and he had decorated it all up for us as a surprise when we got home. These are the things that you can get your children to do during those years because they really look up to you, they really want to please you. And if you give them encouragement, wow, they'll go even further and they'll do a lot more for you. So remember that. And we'll notice in this instruction chart that on that chart, like on the other one, there isn't a place for spanking. That should have been done and completed by this age. Now we're getting into... uh, With the instruction, there are two things that we instruct. The skills and the talents, which is the same as the other one. And then we have behavior that we're going to deal with. The skills and the talents... We are training in a different way than we do behavior. Skills and talents, you're doing through goal incentives, through rewards. This is a skill that they're learning to do. So you want to encourage them to get better by building in some incentive, not necessarily at the beginning, but as they're going along, encourage them and say, you're doing so well, I think you need a reward for this or that. And then the behavior is a little different. To correct behavior, again, we have two Two types of of behavior that we call it, teenishness is the same as childishness. That's that's the the things that are not um, intentional. They're doing them because just they're a teen. These are things that that are going to happen. There has to be some consequences. You've got to admonish. You've got to give them a related consequence. And usually the consequences will relate to something to deal with a property, piece of something that belongs to whoever, a, a responsibility or a privilege. You can take away a privilege, you can give them an extra responsibility, or you might uh, remove a, a, something that belongs to them, like a bike or a baseball glove or whatever it happens to be. Then the other type of correction that we need to do is the foolishness. And this is where it talks about uh, in the Bible, training the foolishness from the heart of the child. This is a defiant disobedience. And this is the area that we need to work on. And some of the ways we correct that, that behavior, first of all, is by encouragement. We really need to encourage our children at this level. Types of encouragement, of course, verbal is a big one. They like to hear words of encouragement. Physical encouragement, a tap on the shoulder, a hug, whatever, and appreciation. And that's done by a little gift here and there and uh, an act of service. You might find that they didn't have time to do something at home and so you do it. And you don't make a big deal out of it. You just go up to the child and say, well, I know you're very busy with your schedule and you've done such a good job for me here and here. I did this little thing for you. And, and that's the great appreciation. And they'll come back and try to do things for you then when, when needed. That second chart, please. Now, we have to remember with the foolishness, there are two types of rebellion uh, that we uh, need to deal with. One is an active rebellion where they're outright defiant and they show you, but the other one is a passive type of rebellion where they they are not obeying, And you don't really notice it. Sometimes they just ignore or they'll do something else to replace it thinking they can do good. But you really have to bring them to that point of obedience because even if it is um, something that is passive, it's going to come back later and you're going to have to deal with it in a more open form perhaps. When you you correct, there are three levels of of correction here that we're going to use. And, oh, first of all, just talk about some of the things that you're considering when you're correcting this foolishness the punishment, first of all, has to, hit, has to equal the crime. If you're punishing them way above what needs to be punished, you're going to exasperate your child very quickly. They're going to become bitter. They're going to start to rebel when you ask them to do other things. And you have to look at the frequency of the offense. If it's something that's being repeated over and over by the child, you know you've got to deal with it before it gets out of hand. And um, you have to look at the, the overall characterization of his behavior. Is this something that he would normally be doing or is just this something that happened perhaps a one-time thing? So the punishment will not be as severe as, as it would be in other cases. And, of course, the context of the moment. This could be happening in a situation where you may not be at home. He may be acting out because of another situation. So all of that has to be taken into consideration. And, again, there are the levels of offense. One is the, where you're going to admonish them, you're going to warn them. If this happens again, you'll have to take action. And that leads to the second level where there is an action. And this is the time when people should use that time out for that, at this level. When, For example, if a, if a younger child would be running around and you warn them you're going to get hurt, you're going to get hurt, and you can see it escalating and you know something's going to happen, you need to stop it before you have to get to the final stage. And so you say, you know what? You need to take time out, sit down for a little bit and think about what you're doing. Think about what, what is going to happen if you continue. And then if it does continue, of course, you've got to have the applied consequences where you're going to have to do something. And most of the, the types of consequences will be a natural consequence. That follows from what, if they've, if they've uh, done something, it will be a natural outflow from that. Or something that's logical that you've thought up uh, and it has to, again, fit the crime. A loss of a privilege. And the other thing that's very important is the restitution. Even if it was an accident, if they've broken something that belongs to someone else, it needs to be restored. And then when when this whole um, correction process is finished, the child, there should be some repentance, there should be some restoration, there should be some restitution, and then there should be forgiveness And and one thing in my reading as I was preparing for this, uh, I never thought of it before, but where it says, you know, it's so easy to go up to someone and say, I'm sorry. But teach your children to say, forgive me. I made a mistake. That's to recognize the motive of the heart. That takes a lot more that happened to me just recently. I said something to someone without thinking. I felt so bad, and I got home from church, and I got on the email, and I emailed that person, and I remembered what I'd learned, and I had, you know what? It took a lot more to say, forgive me. I really shouldn't have said what I did. And and so that teaches the child, too, that they have to recognize what's going on in their heart. The other big area that we want to talk about is um, the communication, and that's important with the teens, you're going to be communicating with them in a different way than what you did with your younger children. We talked about building up that climate of trust. They have to know that they can trust you and feel secure and that they can come to you openly and honestly. Now there's something again that I, I really didn't realize, I mean I may have known it but I didn't think about it. When you're communicating with boys, they like to be communicated with in an indirect conversation father and son are out washing the car and they have the most uh, in-depth discussion they're going for a walk they're going for a bike ride but if you have a daughter don't try that with her she'll be so hurt she wants a direct conversation sit down undivided attention. they want to feel that they are really important to you and that's their way of feeling it so direct conversations with the girls but indirect with the boys and when you're when your child is talking to you, listen for the content, not only, but also for the intent. Because sometimes it's very hard for them to come out with what's troubling them. And you've got to be uh, listening to say, what is the issue? That's not the whole thing. They may tell you something, but underneath there's another, another issue that you really need to delve into. And so listen for the intent as well. Um, provide opportunities and a good time, even especially with the younger ones, even up to the older ones is bedtime when they 're going to bed. take some time to individually go into their bedroom, sit on their bed, talk about their day, see what 's happening or or around the dinner table if if people are free enough, but or going for a walk. these are ways that you can and and we need to learn ways of communicating our love to our children, especially at the older level it 's not so easy to just go up and hug them and give them a kiss or whatever, although I must say our Boys are still affectionate. There was never a time when they didn't want to be seen giving us a hug in public, and and that's just ours, I guess. But um, but many children are not that way, and and you need to communicate that love to your children. And love is, is is two ways: giving and receiving. Giving is the action; receiving is the feeling. And I'm not sure if you've if you've um, heard talk of the five languages of love. Were uh, there are five different ways that love can be expressed, and everybody has one primary language. And if you aren't meeting that child on their primary love language, then they feel they're not being loved. So there are five ways. Encouraging words is one. A gift-giving. Uh, acts of service. Physical close, uh, touch and closeness. And quality time. And as I was preparing for this, our family got all involved in this whole uh, parenting thing, and we've been talking parenting for months, and I really honestly had to go back and talk to my children and ask for, for, for forgiveness where I had failed them in their parenting when I started this because I thought, how can I stand up there and talk if I've made those mistakes, and so, and, and I interviewed both of mine, and we talked about it, and I asked them what things that um, were, that they would have improved if they could have on our parenting, and they were open enough and honest to, to talk about it, and um, it, it brings you closer. But you have to find out, and, and I've done the same thing with our children, finding out what is their primary uh, a love language. If you know it's just a, a little gift or somewhere along the line and you know that that makes them feel good, then you do that. And it doesn't have to be much, a little thing. One of ours, he, he enjoys that. And so often I come home, oh, I thought about you. I brought you this or I brought you that. And it makes them feel loved. So look for ways that you know they appreciate or their language of love. Okay, we've got a whole list, and I'm not sure if I'm going to go into all of those. I think you can read them pretty much. But one thing I do want to bring out from this is that two teens and even the middle years, 6 to 12, to them, love equals time. And time spent with them individually. If you spend time with them individually, they know they are loved. And the one comment that one of my sons said, well, when we were talking about what could be improved, well, more father-son talks. Well, it just so happened that they had a trip planned for camping. They had a whole week together, so this was a prime opportunity then to have some more of those father-son talks. So we need to, to find ways that we can do that with them. The next one. And I think maybe as he's finding, putting up the next one is that uh, we also need to, to talk about... Um, our example and being a consistent role model. That's so important for them. And acknowledging our own mistakes. We'll we'll talk about that in a little bit more depth in a minute. I want to come to the section uh, that we've put in for the fathers, and I think so often um, mothers have been delegated to the role of parenting, but in our world today it's so vital and so crucial to be able to, to have the fathers involved in some of these things and there are some statistics that are quite quite uh, scary when you when you hear about uh, some of the the families that have no father role image and um, th- there's one biblical example that I think we all need to look up to and, and I look at the one of Abraham and I'm just going to list some of the things that he was and it said God God approved of him, he was responsive to God, his reverence toward God, his peaceableness even with lot and then he even rescued lot later he pleaded for mercy for Sodom and Lot. His sympathetic uh, firmness with Hagar and Ishmael. He didn't allow his own feelings to come in to to rule over the will of God. He had vision when he chose a wife for Isaac uh, from his kindred and his commitment to God, even when he had to sacrifice Isaac. And the one that I think of is what a strong father-son relationship he had when he had to sacrifice his son. You don't hear his son asking, why dad? His son went right along with it. And that, to me, shows that he really had a relationship with his son. There are three levels uh, that a, a father can attain. One is, uh, and, and it's said that most of them don't attain the third level. The One is the biological father. Well, everybody is that. Then there's the provider of, this, of, of sustenance that you bring, provide for your family. But the third one is the relational commitment. And this is the part that's sadly lacking in our world these days, that the fathers are too busy often to to have a committed relationship with their children and with their families. I'm just going to run down some of the things that that, uh, a a father needs to to do in order to help that uh, situation. And I guess the one that isn't really on there but it's understood is to be the spiritual head of the home. That's your first mandate. And even if you think your wife has some spiritual capabilities and and can do all those things, you need to take your place as that role and head of the home. And I I think of that relationship at home should be like a president and a vice president. The president is totally in charge, but when he hands over the authority because he's not there, then the wife has to be knowledgeable about all those things and and be a a trusted partner in that relationship. But you have to be the head, the father, the father. You need to cultivate a, a sense of family identity. That's the father's role. He's going to be doing that. And, and that makes your, pe- your family more loyal to you when, they, when there is that sense of identity, when they realize that, that you can be trusted, that, you're, that you accept the family and you, you verbalize a commitment to it. Demonstrate an ongoing love for your wife. That's important. And some people advocate that when you come home from work, it's not your children first. It's your wife first. You need to go and spend some time with her. They call it what they call it, couch time. Sit on the Chesterfield in front of your children, whatever else is going on, and just spend some time together first. The children will see that, and realize that you have a commitment to your, to your spouse first, and then to the to them afterwards, and it makes them much more secure. Uh, understand your child's private world. We all live in a in a, a public, private, and a personal world, and often we don't get into our children's private world especially if they tend to be quiet and, and they hold a lot in and so there will be those rare moments when they'll share an insight, a discovery uh, a feeling with you and you need to be there to experience that because those are the precious moments in your child's in your life give your children children the freedom to fail somehow uh, the acceptance of failure by fathers is a big thing with children and maybe because they feel your standard is high and if they fail you, they've, they've failed. They have no, no sense of worth. So you've got to give them a room to be able to fail. And from those failures come the successes. And as long as they realize you accept their failures, they're fine. Encourage your child. And that's a, you can be a real source of, of encouragement for them. Guard your tongue and your tone. So often children become excited. They come in, they rush in, they want to tell you something. And just by the tone of your voice, you can deflate that balloon in two seconds flat. And believe me, the next time they won't be so keen and ready to come and share some of those excitements with you. Routinely embrace your child. This is so important. Even at the middle teenage, all the way up, they need a a, a routine hug, just a, a feeling of closeness, especially with the father and the daughters especially, because if they don't get it from you fathers, they're going to look in the wrong places. And the other thing with sons, fathers, it's so important because you give them their masculine identity. And if they can't identify with you, if they can't relate to you, then their feelings of masculinity also are having some difficulties. They are having trouble sorting, sorting those things out. And, of course, you need to build trust on God's Word. And that's our most important thing is to teach these, these children uh, the, the trusting, long-lasting relationships. There's a, a book out by uh, jo- um, James Dobson called Bringing Up Boys, and I read through that, and I recommend it highly to whoever has boys. There are so many things in there that we don't often realize. We think that we treat children all the same. But boys need to have a, a little um, different cares at, at times in their growing up years, and especially in today's world. And I think that boys are in difficulty because of, of the breaking up of families, the disengagement of fathers. The wounding of spirits because they're not they don't feel that they're worth anything and and the media and i never started to look at it until i read that book where you look, you listen to the advertisements that are on they're all this feminist approach that's putting down men men are in these these uh, subservient roles under the women just listen open up your eyes and the one example i have never seen this film but the titanic titanic was the story of, of heroes the men were the heroes in the story. This new version has a woman who's the hero and she has all the masculine qualities. And who got in the lifeboats first in the, on this version? Not the women and children. It was the whole story of the men were trying to get into those lifeboats and trying to put men down. And so we really need to counteract that. And, and there are a number of websites now that are, are just dads, dads and sons, dads and daughters, and they're really trying to get parent, the f- fathers back involved in that family uh, role situation. And some statistics are showing that single families that are being parented by fathers, the children are doing so much better than those parented by mothers only because that father image is so important to the children, especially to the boys. What do young people want in their fathers? The first thing is a good, godly example. We have a plaque in our house that says, a godly father is someone you look up to no matter how tall you grow. And to me that says a lot. And it's true. We really need those father images in our homes. They're interested and available. They're encouraged, they give courage and, and encourage and put faith and confidence in us. The father who has proper priorities and who could admit when he is wrong. Okay, and one question was asked in one of the studies that they were doing was, what do you wish your father would have done differently in parenting you? The number one most common response was, I wish he had spent more time with us. And that's a big one. I wish he'd stayed home more instead of always being traveling, not being so critical of me, played more sports with me, talked to me more, accepted me for who I am, done more one-on-one things with me, and was present at more of my activities. These are things that a a, a child needs from his father. Okay, there are a couple of other areas that I'd like to talk uh, talk about because as we get into the later teenage years, of course, we come up to, uh, like I mentioned briefly before, the issue of dating, and uh, it begins, the sexual awareness starts very early in our, in our children these days, and we have to keep our eyes open and watch and be prepared. And there are some families that, that really, when especially the daughters, when they get to be a certain age, they almost go through a ritual where they want to impress on their child the idea of purity. And so some of them will take them out to a restaurant, some that are not of our faith, but will, will present them with a locket and they will keep that around their neck, and you keep the key. And this is their idea of, of, being, of staying pure, and, 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 and when the daughter would get married, then that key would be given back to that locket. And Any little kind of, of things this way. Or there are other ways that can be done. But to impress upon them the seriousness of, of staying pure and that way until that marriage part, the right marriage partner comes along. And I think we need to talk about those things with our children. Sometimes we're afraid to deal with those issues. And, and all the facts of life, and all those things, should already have been taught up by the age of twelve or thirteen, because after that point, the child becomes embarrassed. They don't want to talk about those things because they're already feeling some of those feelings. So you need to delve into it in more depth when it's kind of still a, an issue that's not involving them. And there's a, the Esos have a whole. Um, They've got a lot of tapes out on growing the series Growing Kids God's Way, but they also have one series called Moral Innocence, and it tells you an awful lot about when to tell them what facts of life. And I think we're not knowledgeable about that. And, and even a lot of the literature that I've read, they don't believe the same way we do. Even if they, they are Christian-based, most books you will find advocate masturbation, for example, for, for the boys. And that is something that we really need to deal with with our children. And because of, the, of this deviant lifestyle that's so prevalent these days, we need to be open about these issues. And, and um, there's just a few points that I wanted to bring out about the purity that we need to, to establish that with them. And, and we talk about relationships and and when they are involved with someone else it is an intimate relationship and it ends up that there's probably mutual admiration and the relationship can be broken along the way and if it is broken and they see another person with that person that they were involved with they they get a feeling of of betrayal and this betrayal ends into a feeling of their loss of self-worth so even from that point to say to a child you know, it's important that you don't get involved in these things look at what it's going to do to you your self-worth is going to go down the other one is their self-confidence. And, and that's intended to, to, to blossom, the self-confidence in, a, in an intimate relationship over the years. And, and if these situations go from one to the other, to the other person, how can that develop? The other is, the issue is of health and, and um, the diseases that come with it. And those are there for life. You build up antibodies in your, in your body, and that's there, and that's revealed on any blood test later on. So these are things that are serious issues and you need to make the child aware of those things. And uh, statistics point out that uh, those who, who don't get involved in these relationships before marriage have a better chance of, for a stable, enduring relationship, one that is built on mutual trust and respect. And there was a little article in one of the books that I read about how this professor was dealing with all of these young kids who were living together and, and they were, this was just perfectly fine, but the minute one of them got engaged. The others were, oh, this is wonderful. So it even shows you that even the children who are involved in doing those things, they're not feeling secure in that relationship. It's only when the, the commitment comes from the other person in the form of an engagement or a marriage that that does bring security. And the other one, of course, we know it's forbidden by, by Scripture. So we need to, to really emphasize those things uh, with our children. The other just... Um, area that I'd like to talk a little bit about, and that's from the, from the boys guarding against a um, deviant lifestyle. And again, I, this I wasn't aware of until I did some reading on it. And fathers, you play a real vital role in this. And I, and I, and I just want to point out a few little things. Uh, when, when the children are very small, they, of course, they identify with their mothers because they're their primary source of, of um, they meet all their needs. But as they begin to get older, the boys need to disidentify with their mothers and identify with their fathers. And this starts very early. It starts from about uh, 18 months on, and it says the, the prime time for them to be identifying with that father role is up to the age of 12. So I remember when it happened with our boys, and they would be wanting to do things more with their dad. And not having daughters, I felt a little left out. But then I thought, you know what? That's good. I'm glad that they want, they're wanting to do things with them. And mothers, you can't have your sons tied to your apron strings. It's going to bring problems later on. And I, I know when we had boys at first, my, my prayer always was that I could raise strong leaders for the church. And I thought, if I am the one who's always controlling and always uh, having them onto my apron strings, how are they going to become that strong leader that God needs to be able to use later on? And I think we, we mothers should be, feel honored if we have sons because they're the future of our church. Yes, the daughters are too, but they are the ones who are going to be leading and guiding. And if we haven't done what, we've, what we should have done when they're young, we're responsible for part of that difficulty later on. But in, this, uh, the, in that crucial development, uh, the father, like I said, he's, he must mirror and affirm his son's masculinity. And he has to teach him that by doing masculine things with them. And And the problem comes when your son is not inclined to do those kinds of things. If they don't want to do the rough and tumble play, if they're artistically inclined, if they're more social, if they're not aggressive, all those traits that we associate with the male species, if they are not those, this is where their role identification and and their own identity uh, hits a crisis point. And they feel rejected, they feel lonely, uh, and they go looking for it in other places. They look for the intimacy, they look for all those things in that other lifestyle, and so if you're aware of that, in that process of growing up, we're going to include that as part of our our teaching and our modeling. Now there are some warning flags when your family is 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 having some difficulties with some parenting issues, and they're there, I'm not going to touch on them very much, but you can see the flags, you can see the things if your child isn't identifying with your, with your values, if he's looking for friends outside the family, um, if the peer pressure is greater, some of those areas there. And if he's going from one parent to the other, he gets a no from you and it doesn't bother him at all. He goes to the other parent, gets a no, or get, and tries to get a yes out of that other parent. Doesn't feel guilty at all that uh, he's got what he wants, and that's the main thing. Also, if, if they're losing their sense of shame, if it doesn't bother them to be doing the things that they know you don't approve of, even in front of friends or even in front of church people that they know don't approve of that. Now, if you do feel that you've got some problems, I don't want you to leave discouraged again from this po- forum, so we want to talk about some positives. What can we do? If you do sense that you, you are having some difficulties, and you say, now what? Where do I go from here? What am I going to do? you've got to start over. And kids are pretty good. They will give you a second chance. But they have to see honesty on your part. And I think we need to, we need to first of all, tell God that we want to start over. That's the first place we need to do is go to God and ask for forgiveness where we have failed in our parenting and say, look, I want to do a better job. And then work on your husband-wife relationship if that's been weak in the past, if you haven't shown that to your children. And, this is a little uh, scary for some parents here. Have your teen work on your, on your weakness or help you. You know, you can get a commitment, a bigger commitment from your teen if you say to them, look, I'm really sorry. I've, please forgive me for what I've done wrong. I want you to help me work on this weakness of mine. Remind me when I'm not doing the things that I should. Remind me if I haven't done this or that with you. If I've promised something and if I haven't carried through with my promise, remind me. Believe me, they'll feel a lot more committed to your family. They'll want to help you because basically they do love you just as much as you love them. In spite of how they're acting, in spite of what they're doing, underneath there's still love and they want it to work too. Be an encourager. Uh, Again, some of these things we talked about already about having an interdependent structure. Work on that. Now, how do you start over? You've done that. You've gone to the Lord. You've asked for forgiveness. So now you need to go to your family need to call a family conference and explain that we're going to start over. It hasn't been going so good. We need to start over. And talk about the things that you're going to do. Reveal your mistakes. Seek for forgiveness. Discuss what God requires of parents and children. Obedience and respect. And then establish some goals just like we did today at the end of our lesson. Make out some things that you're going to change. Some things that you're going to do together. A course of action answer any of their questions, then pray together and make it a start. But you must be consistent. They'll give you a second chance, but I'm not sure they'll give you a third chance. So you've got another chance. And then the last thing that I want to end up with is is some of our lifelong concerns. And there are some issues that we we need to deal with. The most common concern they found with studies is that the young adults don't have meaning in life. They don't know what their purpose is. And this was vividly uh, expressed last night in the testimony by Nick. He had no purpose for life. He doesn't feel like he's worth anything. And this is the biggest issue your teenagers are going through right now. It's, what am I here for? What am I doing? And I think if, if we can help them establish a purpose and show them and, and, and help them work on it so that they can, they can also realize that. And there's something you know to keep in mind. Spend your life on something that will outlast it. As a parent, you know what can we take with us to heaven? Only our children, nothing else. So that should be our prime concern. That should be what we're working on. And knowing you've led your, your children to the Lord, uh, that will be with them, and that you will be with them in eternity, will outrank every other achievement that you that you've done in this world. And then as they get older, and we're at that stage right now you need to let them live their own life even if they're living it in your home. Yes, there are rules and there are things you still abide by in the home and in the family but you've got to let go and and even if they have to fail in some areas you have to let them perhaps fail in order to learn from that. Pray for them daily. Some people set a certain hour aside every day to pray just for their children. Some people fast one day out of the week just for their children something that's easily done. We need to talk about some of these everyday issues that they're dealing with. Talk about dating before it even happens. Talk about how you feel about it. There are some good books. There's one here, I Kiss Dating Goodbye, that you can recommend for the children to to read even on their own, and it will back up what you're saying. It will give them the same ideas. Talk about their choice of career. Don't leave it all up to the child. They need your input. What college are you going to go to? And we had an awful lot of discussion about that and and we kind of maybe had to learn that was one of the glitches that came along in in, in our situation was the career choice. And and my son went through quite a, a trial because this is one area where I felt that I didn't deal according to my convictions maybe and maybe we could have spared him some heartache. But we've weathered it through, and thank the Lord, it's, it's come to a point where he's accepted that, yes, that wasn't the, maybe a good career choice for him, and he's now the Lord has led him into another area that he can deal with in a, a, a little better. And so these are the things that we can we can help our, our, our teens with, but we need to communicate. Teens don't like to be uh, questioned and bombarded with a number of, of questions. And so we need to come around in a way of, of just bringing it out in just a, oh, I've observed, or I've seen that you're doing this or that, instead of asking them how was your day today that you're going to get a shrug or a no or a yes and that's about it but you need to find ways that you can you can communicate with them just through talk and not the questioning uh, we could go on into other things and there's one uh, last thing that we need to start early in our children's uh, lives too and I've been doing this lately praying that the right that they would come to the right marriage partner that they would choose the right one. And that starts early on. You know, if you've got a good relationship with your family, it only takes someone else to come in and disrupt that whole family situation. And I'm really praying earnestly and sincerely that God would lead my boys to the or our boys to the right person that it would just expand our family to the point where it it could be joy always even though that they're not in our homes and they're not with us anymore. There's just a couple of final comments that I want to end up with because I, I know we're running out of time and I just want to leave a, maybe time for a couple of questions if possible. Uh, one thing it says: it takes strong marriages to build strong families. It takes strong families to build strong people. It takes strong people to build a strong church. So like Brother Bob said the other evening, it all goes back to the family. And you know what? If we don't do our job, we can complain to the elders, we can complain to anybody else after that. It, it won't do much good because we have failed. Just a couple of comments. I hope that you've seen or I hope that you can realize the job of parenting is an awesome responsibility. It's a colossal ambition, but we have the resources of heaven at our disposal. Wisdom is given upon request, love is the only commandment, self our greatest enemy, the Bible our only educational resource, the Holy Spirit our comforter, and the blood of Christ our only hope. Let us run the race that is set before us, For as much as you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. And I think every trial that you go through and everything that you do as a parent comes back to that. It's not in vain. Thank you. And if there are any comments or questions, I know our time is over, but we'll take any comments. Or if you want to stay behind for a minute and talk to us, that's fine too. I hope I haven't thrown too much at you. (laughs)